James wants us to know that pride not only puts us on a collision course with others, but it also puts us on a collision course with God Himself. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues our current series with part 10 of War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, says this about pride. Pride is the first sin that ever entered into the universe and the last sin that is rooted out. Pride is the worst sin. It is the most secret of all sins. It is a secret and subtle sin and appears in many shapes which are undetected and unsuspected. Well, friend, today, Tom, in James chapter 4, will continue to explore how pride and conflict are related and what you should do about it. Let's join Tom Pennington now from God's Word on the Word Unleashed. As Nebuchadnezzar reflected, he said this, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? There are no Nebuchadnezzars around in terms of greatness, but there are plenty of Nebuchadnezzars around in terms of attitude. You can be proud of your position and your status. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and he says they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. You can love position and status, even religious position and status. You can take pride in your spiritual activities. Again, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, speaking of the Pharisees, Jesus says they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And then he lists two. They broaden their phylacteries. This was a misunderstanding of the command to bind the word of God to your forehead and to your heart. They took it literally, but they also widened, or excuse me, lengthened their tassels, the tassels of their garments. That was commanded by God, but they just made them bigger than God required so that everybody would know how spiritual they really were. You can take pride in your spiritual activities, even those commanded by God. You can take pride in your spiritual gifts, responsibilities, and privileges. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul warns us about this. He says, Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. You can be proud of the gifts God has given you. You can be proud of knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, 1, Knowledge makes arrogant, that is, without love being mixed with it. You can be proud of your theological prowess, of your biblical knowledge. You can be proud of your convictions, those things that go beyond the Scripture themselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that you may learn the meaning of the saying, not beyond what has been written. Stick with the Scripture, he says. Why? so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. When you go beyond Scripture, when you go beyond what has been written, you begin to be puffed up and proud. Look how spiritual I am. By the way, the next verse in 1 Corinthians 4 answers all human pride. 
Listen to what Paul says. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you haven't received? Paul says, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Pride is so insidious that it can also manifest itself toward God. Let me give you just a few of the ways it manifests itself toward God. We can be so proud that we deny God's existence. Psalm 10, verse 4, The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. When you meet an atheist, what you discover is someone who is so proud that he refuses to acknowledge there is another authority in the world to whom he needs to give account. We can also be so proud that we disobey the word of God. In that great chapter 9 of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah pours out his confession and the confession of his people before the Lord, in verse 16 he says, But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. How did they act arrogantly? They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. Then he goes on to verse 29 of the same chapter. He says, And you admonished them in order to turn them back to your law, Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. If you understand what the Scriptures teach about some issue in your life and you are standing stubbornly refusing to do what the Scripture says is a demonstration of your pride before God. A third way our pride can manifest itself toward God is we can simply refuse to give God Glory and thanks for what he does. There's a very interesting verse in Second Chronicles. You remember, of course, King Hezekiah. He was told he was going to die. He poured out his heart and cried out that God would give him more life, and God responded and did. But in Second Chronicles 32.25, we read this. Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. Why? Because his heart was proud. Listen, an unthankful heart is a proud heart because if we're unthankful, it means we think we deserve it. We got what we deserved. So why do I extend thanks for that? A fourth way that our pride demonstrates itself toward God, and I think the way that it demonstrates itself most frequently among Christians, is the displaying of an independent, self-sufficient spirit. I can handle it on my own. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 5, God says this to the people of Israel. He says, I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. Then he says, as they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. They became utterly self-sufficient, assuming that they were capable, now that God had gotten them there, of caring for themselves. That's pride. And when you and I live our lives independent of God, independent of his help, independent of acknowledging the need for his help, then we are proud. Let me just ask you, are you characterized by any of those attitudes? Do you see yourself as a cut above others? Do you measure everybody else against yourself and they always come up short? Are you independent in your relationship with God, self-sufficient? Well, what is God's perspective about pride? Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. That, by the way, is exactly what James is saying. Turn back, look again at James chapter 4, verse 6. He says, God 
is opposed to the proud. The word opposed is a very interesting Greek word. It's a military term, actually. It means to station or arrange against. This word vividly describes God continuously taking up arms against or doing battle with the proud person. God has taken up the offensive. He is on a military offensive. He is launching all of his artillery against the proud heart. This is a recurring theme of Scripture. Psalm 18, 27, you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. Psalm 138, verse 6, though the Lord is exalted, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Daniel 4, verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar says, I praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for he is able to humble those who walk in pride. You know, there are many illustrations of God showing his opposition to the proud in Scripture, but I don't think any is more poignant than one I discovered as a new Christian. I want you to turn with me to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, chapter 26. As a new believer... I was reading through this portion and was shocked, really, by what I found. Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 1. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. Verse 4. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. And verse 6 and following details how God prospered this king, Uzziah. But I want you to look at verse 16. The tone changes. But when Uzziah became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Understand here now that he's not allowed by God's law to take this role upon himself, but after the death of his mentor, Zechariah, he decides that he is more than capable of filling the role that Zechariah had left. And so he goes to offer incense. Verse 17, then Azariah, the priest, entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron. Those are the ones God chose. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest... The leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out because Yahweh had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Here you see in vivid detail an illustration of God opposing the proud. In fact, this may be a surprise to you, but God himself says that part of his, if I could say it respectfully, his job description as God is to humble the proud. Job chapter 40, 
You remember, of course, that all of Job's friends have been speaking most of the book, and now God in chapter 40 speaks, and he cuts through all the fog left by Job's friends. In verse 1, the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let whom who reproves God answer it. He says, are you really going to reprove me? Are you really going to find fault with me? Job, in verses 3 to 5, says, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't be talking like this. I'm not going to answer. I'm not going to say anything more. But God's not done talking. Verse 6, the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And then in verse 9, he begins to talk about what it's like to be God. He said, fine, Job, you want to be God? Then here's what you'll need to do. Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Now watch verse 11. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. God says, this is part of what it is to be God, because I am God. I know that the glory belongs to me alone. Now, turn back to James chapter 4. What I want you to see is that in the context of James 4, the proud are not only those who see themselves above others, who live with an independent spirit, but the proud here are those who engage in a pattern of arguing and fighting, who are pursuing their own cravings and are thereby unfaithful to God. But here's the key issue. Yet they still refuse to acknowledge their sin. They refuse to do what God urges us to do in verses 7 through 10. They refuse to humble themselves and to repent. Therefore, James says, they're not going to receive God's grace. Now, folks, the same is true for you and for me. Whatever our sinful propensities may be, if we stubbornly hold on to our sin, if we refuse to turn from it, if we refuse to turn back to God, we are proving ourselves to be proud, and God will put himself in active opposition to us. This is how pride thinks. John Milton, in his epic poem, Paradise Lost, records a conversation that Satan has in hell with those fallen angels that followed him. After God has cast them out of heaven, they find themselves in hell deciding what their strategy is going to be. And Satan, according to Milton, says this to these fallen angels in these immortal words, "'Tis better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven." That is the expression of pride. That is the unvoiced or even unthought view of the proud heart, and it invites God's opposition. How is it that God opposes the proud? What are the weapons God uses against us when we stand resolute in our pride? Well, we don't know all the weapons. God has an infinite variety at his disposal. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar just says he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That doesn't mean God's going to do to us what he did to Nebuchadnezzar. But what it does mean is that God has just the right weapon for everyone who is proud. Charles Spurgeon writes, See Nebuchadnezzar, the mighty builder of Babylon, creeping on the earth, devouring grass like oxen until his nails had grown like a bird's claws and his hair like eagle's feathers. Pride made the boaster a beast as once before it had made an angel a devil. 
God hates high looks and never fails to bring them down. All the arrows of God are aimed at proud hearts. Listen, if you and I are ignoring the pride in our hearts, if we are allowing it to grow undisturbed, then we have declared war against God. Or more importantly, God has declared war against us. We are defending our pride, then we are killing God's grace. God is opposed to the proud. But notice the second line, he gives grace to the humble. Those words, of course, are very much like the words we looked at in detail last week. So we don't need to review all that we said then. Just notice that the key word there is the word grace. It's everything we need as believers. And James literally says that God is giving grace. This is how God consistently acts. This is his constant practice. James says God gives grace. He consistently treats with favor. He is good to. He befriends the humble. Now, it's vital that you understand, or I should say that you don't misunderstand, the relationship between grace and humility. Don't for a moment think that we earn God's grace by our humility. Grace, by definition, isn't deserved and can't be earned. We do deserve God's wrath, and we will always deserve his wrath, whether we humble ourselves before him or not. No one deserves or ever deserves his grace, but God has sovereignly determined to give grace only to those who humble themselves before him. As Douglas Moo puts it, God's gift of sustaining grace is enjoyed only by those willing to admit their need and accept his gift. Imagine for a moment that a wealthy philanthropist had decided to give a million dollars to a family and that the only qualifications were that they be in abject poverty and that their total indebtedness was at least $100,000. Perhaps as many as a million families would make application for the money. All are equally in impossible debt. None of the families is any more deserving than another. But the wealthy man decides to give his money to the family who can best understand the depth and severity of their need. That is how our God always works. He extends his grace to the one who humbles himself enough to see his true problem. Let me show you several texts that make this point. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. The writer Isaiah often makes this point as well. Isaiah 57, verse 15, he says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And then you come to the New Testament, and the story doesn't change. Jesus, in his first major sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, as he lays out the kingdom principle, says to his disciples, the very first beatitude, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit, the beggars in spirit, who are in spirit what a literal beggar is, recognizing they have nothing but to cry out for someone else to intervene. Jesus puts it in these words in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 30. The Pharisees and scribes were grumbling that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus answered and said to them, 
It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Martin Luther, in commenting on that, put it this way. Listen carefully. He says, it is God's nature to make something out of nothing. That is why he cannot make anything out of him who is not yet nothing. It's only when we come to recognize ourselves as nothing that God is ready to intervene. Of course, the most beautiful illustration of what it means to come humbly and contritely before God comes in a story our Lord told in Luke 18. You remember he talked about these two men who went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And he says the tax collector stood some distance away, was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That is the opposite of a proud heart. And it's to that kind of humble heart God extends his grace, whether it's saving grace, as in the case of that publican. Jesus said he went down to his house, what? Justified. Or whether it's forgiving, sanctifying grace, it comes when we humble ourselves like that. It was August 31st, 1986. 10 o'clock in the evening, a Soviet passenger ship called the Admiral Nakimov, sailed with over a 1,000 people on board. Just a few minutes into its voyage, the ship's pilot noticed that a Soviet freighter was on a collision course. He radioed a warning to the other ship, and the freighter responded, but the captain of the freighter made no change in course, did nothing to slow his ship, and they continued on a collision course. The captain of the passenger ship decided... They were going to stay on course, nothing was going to happen, and he went to bed and left his second mate in charge. A local dispatcher saw on the radar screen that the two ships were headed toward each other. He repeatedly sent warnings to both the passenger ship and the freighter, but neither changed course or slowed. Only when it was clear that the ships were within seconds of colliding did either ship take action, but it was too late. About an hour after they had left port, a freighter rammed into the starboard side of the passenger ship at a speed of five knots. The Admiral Nakimov immediately began to list to her starboard side. The lights went out. A generator came on for a moment, but two minutes later, the lights went to darkness, and people were stumbling their way down the corridors of a sinking ship in darkness. There was no time to launch the lifeboats. Hundreds of people dove into the oily water, grabbing to life jackets and barrels and debris, whatever they could get to hold them. Admiral Nakimov... The ship sank in only seven minutes. Passengers and the crew had little time to escape. Over 400 people lost their lives that night. The investigation found that the sole cause of the accident was human pride. Both captains were cited for gross negligence and spent 15 years in prison. James wants us to know that pride not only puts us on a collision course with others, but it also puts us on a collision course with God himself. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 10 of his current series, War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. Tom will have part 11 for you on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. But before we leave you today, Tom has some closing thoughts. Tom? Friend, let me pray for us. 
thank you, Father, for using by your Spirit the words that we've learned from James as a kind of scalpel to expose our sinfulness. Lord, help us as your people to humble ourselves before you, to acknowledge our sin, to acknowledge our desperate need of you. Father, teach us how we can humble ourselves so that we can receive the grace that we so desperately need. Grace for forgiveness, grace for holiness, grace for everything that we need in this life. Help us to understand that you stand opposed to the proud, but give grace to the humble. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.